Good evening, Tapsters. I'm Jonathan, or shall I say, I'm Jonathan J.M. Rowe, your humble producer. We here at This Is Vinyl Tap relentlessly strive to produce our best product for you, the occasional listener. We understand that your auditory experiences verge on the sacred, and that is why Doug, Tony, and I spend countless hours before each episode rehearsing our lines to produce a concise, fact-filled program you'd be proud to listen to in the background while you're doing chores. Occasionally, however, we, and by that I mean not me, we get a little long-winded, and no amount of editing suffices so that he or um, she seems pithy. As this with background, after hours of debate with our board, a dog, two stuffed elk heads, and a tuba, we begrudgingly decided tonight's episode will be divided into two parts. The first part, good. The second part, um, commercial-free. And so, without further ado, part one of This Is Vinyl Tap's review of London Calling by The Clash. Tonight on This Is Vinyl Tap, Montgomery Cliff, phony Beatlemania, and an answer to Tammy Wynette. In 1948, Columbia Records introduced the 33 and a third RPM long player record. One year later, RCA Victor introduced the 45 RPM single. Listeners now had a choice, only the hits or the full album. In the last half of the 60s, the best bands realized the potential of the longer format and began to build a cohesive body of music that must be heard unbroken. The arrival of downloadable music has increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with the hits. This podcast believes every album tells a story. Tonight, we tell one of those stories. This is the biggest album we have tried to take on, guys. This is going to be a monster mouthful for us to go through. Tonight's album is London Calling. 1979, the third album by The Clash. And you can look up all of the critics, and all you're going to hear about is this is one of the best albums ever made. It's a double album. It's compared to other double albums like Blonde on Blonde by Bob Dylan or Exile on Main Street by The Rolling Stones. But we're going to take it on anyway. Uh, one of the reasons we're going to take it on is because the Clash filmed Rock the Casbah video here in Austin, Texas, which pretty much makes us experts on the Clash. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Tony. And uh, oh, go ahead. Joe Ely. Yeah, Joe Ely sang backup on that song. <laughs> yeah, he and he and uh, Joe Strummer both sang in Spanish, and neither one of them knew it very well. <laughs> well, at least he got, you know, Joe Ely had trouble because his girlfriend would never speak Spanish to him. So, uh, <laughs> Tony, why don't you yes, kick sir. us off here? We're, we're really taking on a gigantic album that is 
extremely influential. You can hear everybody that came after the clash on this album. Yeah, I, I think I think the, the just on the um, just to get this out. One of the reasons this is such a big album was because it it elevated uh, the quote unquote punk uh, genre to something that it hadn't really uh, reached before. Um, you know, I love the Ramones, but the Ramones, you know, kind of stick to what they know. The Sex Pistols imploded in this band. The Clash, uh, you know, weren't content with just kind of being this uh, aggressive uh, in your face political band. They're a political band. They're aggressive. They're in your face, but they weren't content with that. And so they stretched their wings and particularly on this album. This is kind of the beginning of all of that. And uh, and it started that process of of making them, uh, you know, almost their their big the the moniker on them was they were the only band that mattered. I'm not sure yeah. if you guys heard that. That's what the record record label used to say about them uh, yeah, in, yeah. in press. And this album, in a way, sort of made that true for a little while. Um, well, you know, one of the things I heard is that they were. First of all, not real happy with their manager who was trying to to pigeonhole them in that, and there was just kind of this, you know, perfect storm of it. they went on a tour of the United States after their second album, and they were opening for or sharing the stage with bands like uh, Bo Diddley, Sam and Dave, and even Joe Ely. That on that tour, they yeah, uh, and so they were just kind of absorbing all of this stuff. And they kind of thought what they were doing just wasn't really all that interesting. They were trying to branch out and do more interesting things. And their manager was kind of holding them back on that. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Jim. Bernie Rhodes is their manager. They ditched him. They got a new manager who was uh, Paul Simonon's, I believe that's how you pronounce his name, uh, girlfriend at the time. And she got uh, CBS's label... Um, epic in the u.s to pay for a u.s tour they actually reached out to bo diddley to to open up for them um he he i don't think i don't know if he was actively touring or what but they, they got him to tour and he was a little confused as to why he was touring with this band and uh he, he and, didn't uh, think very highly of the fact that they had all those martial amps stacked <laughs> up the yeah end. they were way too there's loud an interview with him saying what do you need all that for? What's that for? Don't they want to hear when they get older? <laughs> but they ended up, I think they ended up sharing a tour bus with him. Like they would travel with him and stuff. And they he ended up, they ended up getting along really well, but you're absolutely right. They, they, they absorbed all these different influences. And then the other thing that happened when they ditched their manager was he owned uh, the recording studio that they recorded in. And so yeah. they had to find another recording studio and they found one that was kind of away from everything called vanilla studios Mick Mick Jones and and um, Joe Strummer Joe Strummer had not written anything for I think over a year before they went back in the studio. That tour and then getting into that studio away from everything sort of gave them the the impetus to start working on stuff. And what they would do is they would go evidently they would go um, jam for a little while, play a bunch of covers, various different types of music musical things, and then they go play soccer across the street and on a concrete yeah. pitch. And then they would come back and they jammed some more. And that was what kind of helped loosen them up. And they became kind of a more of a unit. I think this was the first album, if I'm not wrong, the first album that uh, Topper Heaton was like in on the creative start of it. I think all the other, yeah. they had written everything prior to him joining the band. So this was kind yeah. of the first album he really, I think, got to be influential on that stuff. 
the funny thing about the soccer thing, I'd, I'd heard that they, the CBS executives showed up to, uh, to see what they were, uh, what they were up to at this studio that no one knew about. And, uh, they wouldn't talk to them until they took them across the street and played them and, and you know, kick their rear ends in soccer, which I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> did, Tony, did you notice that they, uh, they didn't know the name of the game they were playing. They kept oh, accidentally yeah. calling it football, which I, did, I found yeah. very entertaining. Yeah, I, it is funny that they call it football. You, you know, it's what are you going to say? They're, they're Brits. They just don't know the language very well. Right. Well, JM, tell us a little bit about these uh, characters that are playing on this album. Okay, well, let's go with the with the drummer, um, Copper Heaton. He, what they discovered when they got to um, Vanilla Studios is what they they had a monster drummer. They had no idea how good he was. Uh, and, and like what Tony was saying, he was not really part of the creative process before. But when we were doing all these covers, they just figured out this guy can play anything. And they just decided to try to work around that. And so they started doing ska. They started doing reggae. Um, started doing kind of the, the Sam and Dave kind of stuff. It's so funny that this big breakthrough for a punk band depends so heavily on the fact that only some of the songs are punk songs and yeah. all these other well, genres now. And it's funny. And he was a jazz, I think he was a jazz drummer he and he played in a prog band at one point. And so <laughs> yeah. he was actually a pretty seasoned musician, um, which is kind of funny considering that he ended up hooking up with these guys. It's, it seems uh, to me that he made them improve their game quite a bit in a hurry. So oh, another absolutely. Thing, yeah. An, another thing we have to mention is the, the producer, uh, Guy Stevens. What I read about him, and I, I know he's a very influential producer, but I also know he had a very bad alcohol and, and drug problem. And I'm not sure how The Clash got to do this, but for some reason they got to per, uh, pick their producer on this album. And he's not really known, well, he's known for being a great producer, but one of the things he's also known for is creating like a rock and roll atmosphere in the studio. And sometimes that means he destroyed things in the studio, things like uh, chairs and uh, pianos. And uh, so... CBS was a little surprised that they that's who the clash picked, which I guess if you think about it, it's the clash, you shouldn't be that surprised. Yeah, that doesn't make well, sense. He, surprised. he was uh yeah, he was marginalized by the rock industry at that point, the music industry at that point. They found him in a pub, you know, no surprise there, right? Um <laughs> but you know, the the cool thing about that guy is he managed Procol Harum. produced free's debut album he wow. not only he not only, only managed I, tell me who free is i'm i'm a i'm a uh, millennial and i'm not familiar with that man free free was paul rogers first band paul rogers was in a band little band called bad company um, one of the greatest rock and roll singers of all time, in my opinion. Um, yep. Anyway, and great, great free, song. Free, uh, the step from Free to Bad Company is not a very big one. It's not a big one, no. Um, and I believe Free's hit was All Right Now. That's their big, That's their right. big single. 
Um, anyway, he, he, he not only did he produce Procol Harum, but he named them. He gave them their name. And then this is amazing. He was involved in the first, uh, like the first couple of Mata Hoople albums, and then they went away from him, and then he produced, I think, their fourth album. But really? he is responsible. He canned, he, I guess didn't can, he moved the guy who was a lead singer at the time when he started managing Mata Hoople. A, he named them as well. And then he got he got um, Ian Hunter to come in as lead singer for Mata Hoople. So, yeah, I mean, this guy's, <laughs> this guy's a big deal, right? Um, but, but as you said, he had since been, uh, been marginalized because of his drug and alcohol problem. And I don't think, uh, there's this, there's a story I heard where, um, he comes in the studio with three bottles of liquor and he puts them down and he pulls, pulls them out and puts them on the table and the roadie, he reaches, he reaches for the bottle of tequila and guy Stevens like grabs him around the neck or something and says, don't you ever touch my bottle again. And, uh, and that's when they knew that they had something special in this guy. <laughs> well, I I heard a quote from uh, from him that he said, "There are two Phil Spectres in the world, and I'm one of them." <laughs> <laughs> well, if you if you guys see pictures of him, he looks as nutty as Phil Specter. I mean, he's got you know his just his hairs all disheveled. He looks absolutely certifiable. But uh, yeah, um, Joe, Joe Strummer is on the record as saying that he was the perfect cure for writer's block, having that guy in the studio. Well, something worked. And, and let's get on to the songs on this album. It's, uh, it's a double album. I believe it has 19 songs, so we're not going to dive into each song. So I've asked both of these gentlemen to pick some favorites, and we're just going to talk about them. Tony, why don't you go first? Well, Doug, I was before we get into that. Can we talk about why this is a double album? Because it's a pretty interesting story. Tony, would you go ahead and tell us why <laughs> this is a double album? So uh, the Clash was always uh, adamant about their albums not costing very much, and uh, and it's no secret we've already talked about it a little bit. They um, they clash with their um, with their label a lot. So in that spirit. Uh, they they schemed to try to make this a double album. What they did was, when their when their debut album was released in the U.S. It was actually released after Give Them Enough Rope. It was released second. It was the second album released in the states. They had a flexi disc single released for free with the album. So with that in mind, they went to CBS to see if they could do the same thing. CBS agreed. And they said, okay, well, we don't want it to be a seven-inch single anymore. We want it to be a 12-inch single, and we're going to put eight songs on it. CBS is like, okay, whatever. Well, they had yet to rec uh, um, record Train in Vain. When they did that, they added that on. So then this free single ended up being nine songs instead of eight, and it made the album a double album, but it was sold as a single album with a free single. Therefore, it was only priced five pounds at the time in the U.K., so they got their way. Um, Joe Strummer's uh, in an in an interview in Sound Magazine in '79 said it was his fir their first real victory over CBS. But as we were talking about before we started, um, the problem with that was uh, because it was record or sold as a single album, it was counted as a single album. And the Clash, he was always trying to get out of their their contract with CBS, um, were a little bit upset that they couldn't count that as two albums. So when they went in the studio to record their next album, they made it a triple album to make up for <laughs> lost time. And, and train in vain never showed up on the album cover. So mm -hmm. uh, it's an interesting situation where a big hits not even mentioned on the album cover. Yeah. The big Spe hit, right? Speaking big of hit. the album cover, 
it's a very iconic album cover with a story of its own. Uh, what do we have there, guys? Well, it's, it's uh, JM, you go ahead. Well, supposedly it was uh, Paul Simmerman. It, it looks like it's all revolutionary and everything, but supposedly it was Paul Simmerman, uh, the bass player, being upset that what some of his guests couldn't come in off of that <laughs> he had asked to come in for the show and he, he had just found out that they weren't at the show so at the end of the show he was destroying his face because he was mad and yep. and the photographer did not want that picture being used because uh she thought that it was um, not not it was, it was, yeah it was not she's trying to get out of the way yeah, <laughs> she took it, <laughs> and she took it. Um, so it's got that Elvis, and then they, for some reason, I'm, I've never really got a good read on this. They they made it look like the first Elvis Presley album. Well, they yeah, the they 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 had a story behind that. That was the beginning of rock and roll, and this is supposed to be the end of the rock and roll, the final uh, testament. <laughs> my favorite thing about the album cover was what Joe Strummer said about it. He said he said Paul hitting smashing that bass on the stage was the best sound the Clash ever produced. <laughs> it's just a great, <laughs> great quote. Oh, yeah. If you look, one last thing about the, the the album, if you look through the the album cover, they actually show pictures of them in various at various concert venues, and one of them is Armadillo World Headquarters. Yeah, which again is the reason we're such experts on all of this. There you go, <laughs> Tony. Give us a song. Let's get over. Let's get on some of these songs here. Do, do we want to go in order or what my, my top you pick, one is? You on pick this. whichever one you want, and you can even give us its rating. Yeah, would, you go I ahead. Li I would yeah. like to start. I'd like to start at what my favorite song of the album is, and that's Death or Glory. I love this song. I love it. Um, it, and I, I will I will admit something that I don't uh, I don't enjoy admitting because it makes me sound like a dope. I'm sitting in my garage at work a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, and the song's on the radio and I don't want to get out. I'm sitting there listening to it on the radio and I'm listening to it really for the first time because I'm kind of, you know, antsy to try to get into work. And I'm listening to the lyrics and there's a line in there that I'd never heard before that refers to nuns it's just amazing how many times i heard that song and never heard that line before and i was like what the heck does that mean right yeah. so um it didn't it didn't change my my love of the song uh you know it's it's cynical as hell um J joe strummer is writing about everybody there doesn't uh there doesn't seem to be anybody he's not willing to talk about um it seems to me that it's uh it's got a, it's interesting in that it's um commenting on that whole you know it's better to burn out than to fade away concept and his mm -hmm. his uh his i think he comes down on the on the side of uh nobody burns out everybody fades away for the most part in other words you sit there as when you're young and you're complaining about all this stuff and you're you're angst about it you're angry about it but in the end what happens you end you up selling sell out. out right you sell out here here's something interesting i never knew this song is evidently influenced by t that song time goes by you know the song in casablanca right. wow. um because there's a line in it that says, you know, it's just the same old story, a tale of love and glory, a tale of do or die. 
So he was listening to that and decided, ah. I heard that was the band's favorite, one of their favorite songs, and they sped this song up because they didn't want it to sound too much like it. <laughs> well, you know, the thing about the, the, one of the things about this song is in the hands of somebody less deft with songwriting, this would have been a minor key song. And this would have, it, it would have been an angry, angry song. And, and to me, I just, I love the way that they, they presented it. It's almost like a, a victory song, you know? And, well, uh, as you say, what's interesting to me is that it, uh, it's, it, it's thought of, and I think in a lot of ways at the same, and this won't be the first time I mentioned Springsteen tonight, but in the same ways that born in the USA is mentioned, you know, you got people screaming death or glory at the top of their lungs. They think this is, Oh, this is about, they don't realize what this song's actually about. You yeah. know, it's, yeah. it's, it's kind it's of interpreted. Um, yeah, exactly. All right, yeah. Jim, what do you have for us? So I'm going to go with uh, Rudy Can't Fail. This seems to be a song where they're on the album where they're kind of going into the ska area. I think this would be a song that... the. I'm sorry, like, what's ska? I'm a millennial and I might not know what ska is. <laughs> <laughs> ska is a movement that came out at about the same time that the punk movement came out in England and well, that was got its a, second emergence. Yeah, it yeah. was around earlier than that in the 60s, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it, but it it, it kind of like the, there's guys like the specials and madness that sort of took it to a, a different level where they started in, in using horn sections. And, and in madness cases, in madness case, they used uh, strings. Well, and, why, it, basically, white kids started listening to it at that time. I think that's the big distinction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It came from Jamaica. It was in, yeah, you're right. Um, it's, it's funny how much Jamaica influences this album. Yeah. <laughs> it is. But I love the way that the horns come in on this. Um, and it's, it's a, if you listen to it really closely, it's a very layered tune. There's some of the, some of the things that the horns are doing are, are really surprising that they, they the whole song just kind of has that Phil Spector Wallace sound thing where no well, instrument is prevalent. The horn section is actually part of Graham Parker's band uh, the, with the rumor. Um, yeah, they were called the, the these four guys that played on this album were called the Irish horns and they were part of that uh, Graham Parker's stuff going on at the time. Um, yeah. it, what's interesting about it, though, is after this, they played on a bunch of different rock stuff, including the DB's album Repercussion. And they're the yep. horn section on Walking on Sunshine by Katrina and the Waves. <laughs> <laughs> wow. All right, Tony, you're up. Well, I just, uh, real quick, I want to talk, just uh, to finish up on that song Jam was talking about, because it's a fantastic song. Uh, Rudy is actually, Rudy is a, a slang for rude boys, which were... Um, which were a Jamaican kind of subculture. They were associated with kind of violent discontented youths from Jamaica who listened to that same kind of music. And then, uh, you know, as everything comes around, goes around as, as the, uh, you know, disenfranchised white kids in the UK started listening to this stuff, they started taking on that whole, that whole persona of these rude boys from, from Jamaica. And so that's where, where Rudy comes in is Rudy can't fail. It's a story about one of those guys. So. But yeah, this was definitely one of my top 10, too. It's a fantastic song. And your next one. Uh, all right, well, let's talk about Spanish Bombs. Spanish songs in a 
So Spanish bombs, uh, what can I say? It's just catchy as hell, right? Um, yeah, it is. It's a, and just I think great... when I hear it, I hear so many bands. Yeah. About two or three years later, I hear the Pretenders in that opening. Yeah. It's um, it's it's what's so funny about this album is this is supposed to be oh man we're against the corporate rock and all of that kind of stuff. This is one of this album. In my opinion, the songs are almost immediately accessible, and they all have great pop uh, hooks. And uh, Spanish Bombs is is one of those. Well, I I I, you, I think you hit the nail on the head with that one because this this was one of the last times I think that Mick Jones and and Joe Strummer were really collaborating any any real way. And I think that because of that, you've got that aggression and that angst that Joe Strummer brought to and intelligence he brought to his lyrics. But Mick Jones, that guy, there's no denying that guy had a pop sensibility that that just he infused did. everything he played, right? You can see that big audio dynamite. Just oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So um anyway, this, like I said, this is a great song. What's interesting about this is the song, you know, it 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 kind of fuses two points of spanish history it talks about the spanish civil war from the 1930s and then it fuses it in with the basque separatist movement that was happening in the 70s that's sort of what the 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 umbrella of what the song's about um the roadie again whose name escapes me um he was evidently a a spanish civil war expert so he was coaching joe along with kind of things (laughs) to write about um, and the other kind of interesting thing about this song is there's evidently a Hammond organ playing in it. So if you listen yeah. closely, you can hear it kind of going yeah. off in the background. Inside One, 